0: Alright folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Also, just a disclaimer in case you missed the last few episodes, this was recorded prior to the strike. Anyway, in this episode I chat with writer and director Tommy Lee Wallace about the birth of the Halloween franchise, crafting the shape mask, Fright Night 2, Life After Death, his investigations into the legend of the Bell Witch, and more. As always, thank you for listening. And if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go.
1: Happy, happy Halloween. Halloween, Halloween. Happy, happy.
2: Happy Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Happy Halloween, Halloween. It's almost time, kids. The clock is ticking. Be in front of your TV sets for the marathon and remember the big giveaway at 9. Don't miss it and don't forget to wear your masks. The clock is ticking. It's almost time.
1: Happy, Happy Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Happy, Happy Halloween Super Silver Gemma and goobles, this
2: is your comrade the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the
1: Sanctuary of the Strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs>
0: Take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above?
2: <laughs> all of the above, especially comic books. I guess my first real favorite book, a uh, huge volume of both Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn that my grandma gave me. And my father used to read to me before bedtime out of that book. So I think uh, Mark Twain taught me how to read. Then uh, comic books. Uh, and not so much superhero books, but uh, stuff like Uncle Scrooge and Donald Duck comics. Those adventures that Donald and Uncle Scrooge and Huey Dewey and Louie went on really formulated a lot of my childhood. It really stimulated my imagination. So that was the beginnings. Fort building, you bet, everywhere. Whereabouts in Kentucky did you grow up? Bowling Green, home of Western Kentucky University. That college campus was kind of my playground, and uh, also John Carpenter's as well. He grew up in a cabin that uh, his father was on the faculty. He grew up literally on the campus. I grew up a short walk away, and we became aware of each other as children. We were in the same school, which was a teacher's training school on campus. He was a year older, so we didn't really get close until we became teenagers, but we were aware of each other throughout our childhoods.
0: I had no idea that John Carpenter was from Kentucky till you just mentioned that.
2: Yep, he grew up in the same town, small town. I lived on my bicycle and got all over the town and uh, it was a good place to grow up.
0: So, Tommy, what about your parents? Were either of them artistically inclined or were they involved in the business at all?
2: No, no, not really. They were musically inclined, uh, you know, members of their choir and got me involved in music early, piano lessons and so forth. But uh, no, they, they weren't part of the entertainment business at all.
0: Gotcha. So you played piano. Did you ever, you know, did you ever join any bands or anything like that?
2: Actually, uh, from our school was so small, you were invited to join the orchestra as a fourth grade, which I did on trombone. Like every other kid my age, in the age of Joan Baez and the Beatles, I picked up a guitar at some point and started learning how to play. And then John and I formed a band when we were teenagers called the Kaleidoscope Rock and Roll Band. And we played and gigged around our part of Kentucky playing, you know, mostly for uh, high school dances or fraternity and sorority parties. Yeah, that was it was good fun. Did you guys just do cover songs or did you have your yeah, original we music? Were, well- Funnily enough, we did strictly cover songs. In that part of the country, if you were in a band, you needed to know all the rhythm and blues and soul music and Motown music. And to that, we added all the experimental West Coast sounds that were coming up, certainly a lot of British invasion stuff. But on the side, John was writing songs of his own. We didn't perform those in the rock and roll band, but we had sort of a Peter, Paul, and Mary type group with the two of us plus his girlfriend. There, we sang uh, some songs that John composed. They were pretty good. He was a pretty good pop tune writer. Wow, I wonder if there's any recordings out there that stuff floating around. We did a little bit of that, but we made one really wonderful tape and then john went off to california and took it with him and lost it been hard to forgive him for that (laughs) uh, anyway what can you do right
0: so tommy when you think back to formative films and tv shows that you grew up on what comes to mind
2: well my favorite movies growing up like so many others were uh some horror movies and sci-fi you know son of dracula the giant gila monster battle in outer space 12 to the moon and certainly the uh, dracula the mummy those kind of movies i was really fond of and tv shows man you know the steady diet of all the american tv series i guess my favorite was dick van dyke show mm. and beverly hillbillies and wild wild west and various others the original mission impossible was a favorite
0: I was raised by my grandfather, so I grew up on a lot of those as well.
2: You know, Twilight Zone. Yeah, too.
0: of yeah. course. I was going to ask you if you were Twilight. Absolutely. Obviously, you have to be.
2: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. That was that was thrilling stuff, and still is.
0: Twilight Zone's a staple around here. So, what scared you as a kid?
2: I lived in the attic of our little house, and it was a big attic room, just right for a boy. But there was a closet at the end of that, like a walk-in closet that kind of scared me i i would go in there and turn on that light leave the light on in that closet because that was sort of i you know i that was dubious maybe something bad was in there i don't know i have not experienced horrible fears of that ilk in real life for example if if i'm stuck out in the woods somewhere i'm not scared of any of that because i was a boy scout i knew what to do and how to find my way back to wherever I came from. I can't say I've been motivated hugely by fear. It's an abstract thing, and I enjoy playing around with it, but I can't say it's really deeply felt. I feel very lucky to lead a kind of worry-free existence for the most part. It's just in my nature not to be a worrier. I grew up around a couple of World class warriors in my dad and my grandmother, and I saw what that did to them. I, and I just had my mother's nature, just by birth, it was just a lot more happy-go-lucky. I like to ask everyone this
0: because it's usually a formative experience. Do you recall the very first movie you saw in theaters?
2: Boy, I think my parents dragged me to uh, something that I didn't even understand. I was too little, but I, I guess they couldn't afford a babysitter or <laughs> something. I couldn't have been more than two or three years old, and it was some grown-up drama. The, the last time I saw Paris is what it was called. I think it starred Van Johnson. Black and white, of course. Made no impression on me whatsoever. I think the first movie I really vividly recall being a fan of, I think it was Son of Dracula. It was in black and white until the moment that the vampire killer put a stake in this woman's chest and pounded down on the stake with a big mallet and it went to color as the blood gushed out that's like the same technique as uh, wizard of oz you know black yeah. until the big moment and then it's color wow in this case it was in service of a gusher of blood so stays with me yeah i
0: kind of wish that movie theaters would bring that sort of experience back i've heard several guests that saw the tickler when it came out and said that there was, you know, air blowing up their leg or someone yeah, walking the around the theater. The tingler, the tingler, yeah, I'm sorry, the tingler. tingler.
2: Yeah. It was rumored that they electrified the seats, which listen, you know, given the kind of amusement parks that I grew up around where every ride could be deadly, you know, it could chop your head off or you could go off the rails. Safety OSHA wasn't around yet and safety measures weren't <laughs> weren't in full force. So it could be that they electrified the seats to, because uh, I remember the Tingler. It was uh, this thing that got in your backbone and went up your spine or something like that. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they electrified the seats. <laughs> I just like, I
0: think that adds to the experience. I can remember, you know, I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s. I can remember going to see Scream and someone that worked at the theater dressing up as Ghostface and just walking around the aisles. But I don't think... Sure. It, Sure. Yeah.
2: Alan Arkin died just a few days ago, and some people don't recall, but he was one of the great movie villains in a picture called Wait Until Dark, which starred Audrey Hepburn as a blind woman. And a really terrifying scene in that is when they're trapped. She's trapped in an apartment with this guy, and she can't see him, but she knows he's there. And he's kind of toying with her. And she turns the tables because she turns out the lights so that he's just as blind as she is. Mm. And in that moment when she did that, they turned out every light in the theater. Usually there's kind of little safety lights and exit signs and things. They turned it all out so the theater itself went super dark. I'm with you. The The more of that sort of thing, the better.
0: Right. Why not just add to the atmosphere? So what was the ultimate catalyst for you going from Kentucky to L.A.?
2: Well, John had always known since he was about nine years old, he was in his mind, he was very sophisticated about how movies were made. I didn't even know what a film director was, or that there was such a job. I, you know, like so many others, I just fig- just didn't think about. You know, people think that people like bring the camera and set it up and make up the actors, make up the lines, and sort of naive, vote version of how movies get made. Well, John knew from an early age what a film director was, and he set his sights on doing that. So by the time he got to college he was already kicking at the fences we both were uh, going to western kentucky university he was a year ahead of me playing in the rock and roll band and both of us getting restless he wanted to get on to film school and it was not going to happen at western kentucky university in our town i knew about this big blue book up at the college library and so i took him up there and we went through the book together and he focused in on uh, three colleges that were specializing that had a cinema department. I believe it was New York University, Miami, and University of Southern California. So he focused in and finally, guess it was his, let's see, for me it would have been, uh, after one year of college I left. So after two years of college for John, he enrolled and went off to Southern California. And when I left that town, I uh, was also very interested in the arts, so I discovered I was, I didn't know it, but I was mad about graphic design. That was another thing I didn't know was a thing until I discovered that they taught that in school, design work about various kinds, interior design, graphic design, industrial design, and I thought, oh, hey, that's right up my alley. I think I'll do that. So I went off to Ohio University and studied graphic design, john and i corresponded back then it was all snail mail but man the letters he was writing was like oh i went to sunset boulevard last night and was walking along and stuck my head in one of the clubs and there buffalo springfield was playing or the doors were playing it was like oh wow (laughs) i was getting excited about what was going on out there but the tug for me to finally answer your question the tug for me was between New York, where all the hotshot designers were, like Milton Glazer and Seymour Quast, Pushpin Studios, Peter Max. It was exploding with great poster art and album cover art, big 12 by 12 record albums. I was either going to do that or I was starting to think about going to the West Coast myself, where John was, because man, he was painting a picture and just talking about how cool it was. So spring break, just before I graduated, I took my portfolio, which was pretty good. A lot of graphic design stuff, a lot of exciting visuals. And I took it with me and a girlfriend and a friend and her car. We zoomed out to uh, Los Angeles on spring break to visit John and to go down to USC. And I showed the uh, animation department my portfolio. And the teacher liked it a lot and accepted me. And so I got accepted into their graduate program in cinema. And so after uh, that summer, off I went to California, decided to uh, get involved in the movies.
0: Well, obviously, your film career took off from there. But have you, Did you completely shelve graphic design? Have you touched that? Since? No, no, it, it
2: stayed with me okay. all Everywhere I went, first thing I, I found when I got to USC was an art department that had some silk screens. I was doing posters for like, uh, I was just, it wasn't even much of a paying job. I think, you know, I'd get like 30 bucks or 50 bucks to do the poster for the local film Society's screening of a bunch of Bunuel films or things like that. I was still doing graphics and continued certainly in the work I did with John on his early films. So being a graphic designer came in handy every day. So yeah. it was more just a logical progression that I brought along with me. I use it all the time, even even to this day. I uh, Well, here's I put this uh, book out recently. It's about Halloween 3. And there on the back you can see that h3 logo that's one of my graphic design pieces i stayed with it you know brand new book here right there Uh, well we just sold a copy (laughs) (laughs) you can take a picture of that or you can probably i think you can get it on amazon as well
0: all right i'll post in the description of this
2: called halloween three where the hell is michael myers you know, the title kind of says it all.
0: According to the almighty IMDb, you and John's first project together was Dark Star.
2: Well, it was John and Dan O'Bannon's project, and I came along. They were kind of one foot out the door of USC as I was one foot in the door. It was exciting to just help them finish their first, they finished the student film for about 10 seconds. It was a student film. And then they immediately started expanding it into a feature. That was fun. It was still student filmmaking style and scotch tape and chewing gum and working out the trunk of your car on the weekend. But that was a thrilling experience. That was as good as film school in terms of learning how to do filmmaking.
0: In the trenches, essentially, yeah.
2: Absolutely. I was basically Dan's right-hand man building sets, doing graphics, anything that helped the cause. I I built the elevator shaft. I don't know if you know the movie, but just inventing things. There's this funky keyboard instrument with lots of bottles of water that one of the astronauts plays on as a as a diversion i invented that thing (laughs) on a student film you probably know this yourself you know you got three or four people doing everything not a lot of crew big crew kind of work but just three or four people doing everything dark star got put together more or less that way
0: that led to a long time collaboration obviously between you and john so when did you first hear about Halloween and how did the part you remember the project coming together
2: well John called me at some point and said looks like there's this movie in between there of course after Dark Star the first feature real feature with a real shooting schedule was Assault on Precinct 13 and on that film John asked me to be the art director and do the sets for what was a, the movie was gonna be mostly on a big master set, so he needed somebody to come up with that, that job fell to me. And then in post-production, being accustomed to following a movie all the way to the end, I went to see John in the cutting room. He was cutting his own footage, which is a challenge for a director, but low-budget movie, can't afford an editor full-time, so he was doing it himself, and looked kinda lonely in there, and I said, (laughs) hey, give me a job. Let let me help you finish this thing. And he said, well, can you cut sound effects? And this is sure. Why not? (laughs) Well, let's make it up as you go along. So I learned a lot cutting sound effects. And John gave me uh, the opportunity to cut the action sequences in that movie, which is a lot lot of shoot 'em up in a police station. And I think that gave him the confidence so that next time around, he called me. Halloween was on. He asked me if I wanted to be the uh, production designer, and also would I edit the movie. John really liked working closely with colleagues and friends, certainly everybody likes to work with familiar faces and people they can trust. So that's how that came about. I did that again for him on uh, The Fog. Those two jobs are not especially compatible. Uh, Production designer, art director, plus film editor does not add up to much sleep, you know. So after two of those, (laughs) that was enough of that routine. But that was truly my uh, extension of my film education was those movies.
0: Pretty much become common knowledge to horror fans that you helped create the Myers mask, or at least, you know, the look of it, how he ended up looking on screen. How did you dis- decide on that?
2: Well, I, I didn't help create it. I did. Right, and, right, right. I did completely adapt a... Uh, Captain Kirk mask and turned it into to what people call Michael Myers but in fact the script didn't call it that called him the shape only uh, referred to Michael Myers when the mask came off and it was an actor doing the part for that one scene yeah I invented the shape mask it's one of those circumstances where you're working with a shoestring budget just have almost no money to work with. So there was no question of doing what you would do if you had enough time and money, which is, okay, sculpt a face, sculpt a mask, do a mold, prototype, try it out, modify it blah 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 no i had to go out go shopping find a likely blank face type mask because that's what the script was asking for and uh, adapt it in some way so that's what i did
0: obviously tommy you don't have superpowers you can't see into the future at this time but now a mask that you created is pretty much the most popular mask in the world it's on shelves it's pretty much the face of halloween how does that feel for you (laughs) being a monster kid and now like you have the monster mask
2: I like to say that the feelings are mixed. I'm, I'm delighted and proud of all of that. I'd be even happier if I was making a little money on the thing. I had a penny for every mask that was out there. I'd probably be able to send my grandchildren to college, but that's the way it goes. You right. know, I, I am proud of it and very pleased that we could never have dreamed uh, of the phenomenon that Halloween created.
0: How long did it take you to realize personally just the cultural popularity of Halloween and sort of the zeitgeist?
2: It wasn't just a big smash hit right out of the box. Its release was modest, and it got some people didn't care for the movie very much, or they looked down on it. I think it was Roger Ebert who gave it a boost. He was impressed. He thought it was good. And it just gradually built following we knew it was a good movie we knew it was a scary movie we knew we'd put together something that was worthwhile for people who liked scary movies who wanted to be entertained but the fact that it just kept building and building and building and making more and more money as it went on that was unexpected and of course what followed was also unexpected
0: all right you just kind of mentioned the fog i wanted to ask you what were some of the challenges you faced on the fog as production designer
2: Well, it's funny that you ask that and it's a good question because halloween and the fog consisted of virtually the identical crew from top to bottom up and down the line almost every department was the same so after such a success as halloween and although it was hard work halloween came together smoothly you know it was really a dream situation uh, although it did play the skin off of everyone's back because make a movie on $300,000, you're having to cut every corner and get lucky and work like a, a crazy person to bring it off. So you turn around and say, wait, we've got three times as much money, about a million dollars to go make The Fog. Ah, oh, cool. <laughs> this should be a dream because three times as much money, same people, guaranteed success, right? No, wrong that movie was so hard to bring off it was so much more complicated than halloween and when we finally did you know get the footage in the can go into the cutting room the first day i was in there cutting an ordinary scene from like a medium shot to a close up the cut bumped it didn't quite work and i couldn't i couldn't understand why i was like wait a minute this is this doesn't make any sense this should that cut should work but it didn't want to and the whole movie was a little bit like that things that you would think would just fall together like they had on halloween because it cut together like butter on the fog everything was a struggle and when we finally put it all together john wrote a nice score for the fog and we screened it for ourselves and just a few trusted friends man it just sat there it wasn't, wasn't bad. And I was sitting there trying to convince myself that it would be okay. But John, a brave soul and a kind of a visionary, he had the guts to stand up at the end and turn around and look at everybody and say, you know what? This thing doesn't work. We're going to have to do some more work. And so what followed was like a three week period of just blinding work. I still have the calendar the editing room calendar page from that three-week period that is just it's just unbelievable what we did we planned out a bunch of extra shooting sequences rewriting visuals opticals everything crammed it into this tiny period john even went and wrote a whole new score and flurry of activity, cut it back together, exhausted all of us, sleepless. Then it worked, then it was the movie that you know, that you've seen, but it did not come easily. It was a major struggle.
0: In regards to that first cut that you guys watched, what were the issues in your opinion?
2: It just didn't quite have enough punch. One of the many things we did in the uh, punching it up was uh, anytime in the sequencing, you see a single ghost kind of looming up through the fog like that. We shot that afterwards. That's me in a ghost suit. And that's John behind the camera. It was just like, it came down to that. Dean and some of the reshooting, Dean uh, lit the set late at night. He went home, everybody else had left. And finally it was just John and me, John on the camera and me in the ghost suit kind of here's the fog machine okay fog up ready action okay okay take that develop it bring it to the cutting room cut it in a lot of that kind of behavior that got us to the finish line it's just one of those things about a movie needed more of a sense of expectation all the sequencing at the beginning of uh, these sort of poltergeist like activities happening things in a grocery store going kablooey and all of that was added after the fact to set up to set up what was coming. A lot of detail work of that nature that helped punch the whole thing up. The whole sequence with Adrienne on the roof of the uh, lighthouse, that was added later. Built a whole nother set for that. Stuff like that all gotcha. along the book. That was blinding hard work. It's a testimonial to how dedicated he has always been to getting things right.
0: I wanted to ask you, uh, Tommy, was the second Amityville, Amityville Two, The Possession, was that your first time writing?
2: No, I'd written quite a bit by then, but let me see, maybe that was my first paying gig as a professional writer. I honestly can't remember what came first, but that was very early days for me as a writer. Actually, I think uh, my first paying gig as a writer was called Far From Home. It's a movie that starred uh, Drew Barrymore and Matt Frewer scary movie about a eerie trailer park out in the desert and a demented little kid who's killing people. But then came Amityville, and working for Dino was actually a great pleasure.
0: When you're writing, what do, what's your process like? Are you a heavy one of those heavy outliners, or do you just like to go with the flow and fix it later?
2: John would be the one who just roars in and does it without an outline. I'm more inclined to try and sneak up on it, do at least a, a modicum of outline work and planning. But you know, confronting the blank page and coming up with a full-blown screenplay that's you know, 100 to 115 pages, any way you can get there is the final answer. <laughs> Sometimes you just sit down and write. Sometimes you really work it out with somebody else or you, uh, you just have to make a leap of faith because the most terrifying thing is to be sitting there and be stuck. If I've learned anything as a writer over time, it's to not edit yourself prematurely. If if you have an editor sitting on your shoulder saying, oh, I don't think that's going to work, then you're dead. You have to just go ahead and stick it out there, whatever it is, how crappy it is, because what I've learned is that real writing is rewriting. The first draft doesn't matter as long as you've got something on paper, then it gets easier after that
0: bit of advice i like i don't know who said it was that you could always edit a bad page but not a blank page
2: <laughs> You're right. That's a good way to, an excellent way to put
0: it so i'll get a chase with pitchforks if i don't touch on season of the witch tommy it's such a classic and i've always wanted to ask about your choice to take that risk with the franchise and go the route that you did with the film which i think paid off in time
2: well probably you probably already know that i was briefly the director of halloween 2 when uh, Halloween 2 popped up, I was kind of the logical choice for directing because John was not interested in directing it at all. So it was probably going to come from within the family. That meant me or possibly Deborah Hill, producer, or maybe maybe Dean Cundy, the director of photography. Anyway, I got the nod and I was uh, kind of getting lined up to what it was going to be. I was stumping for a five years later type sequel. I thought that would have rendered an effective story. And in fact, my ideas about that were realized later in H2O, that idea being, okay, this damaged person, Laurie Strode, finally, five years later, plucks up the courage to go off to college at a really protected institution. And it's, it's maximum security, but that turns out not only to protect her, to be, but to be a prison inside of which the shape, you know, wreaks havoc. It was a good idea, and uh, they used it well on H2O. Instead, John and Deborah decided to go with a five minutes later sequel, which in the intervening time between Halloween and Halloween two, a lot of horror movies got made. It didn't happen right away. A year or two went by. And in that time, you had Friday the 13th and a hundred others, and there was a kind of arms race of violence and gore that uh, John was well aware of. So when he wrote Halloween 2, uh, he threw all that in. And it was, to me, the antithesis of Halloween, which was virtually bloodless. It did all of its magic a different way, a more classic way, with suspense and expectation and manipulating the audience in various ways. And humor, too. Which Some would great. say the right way. You said it, <laughs> uh, the gore fest was of no interest to me whatsoever. So when John turned in the script, I hated it. I just didn't like it at all and didn't see how I could bring anything to it. I could have done it, but I would have been kind of faking it. And that wouldn't have been fair to them. They needed right. a director who would be really super enthusiastic and do it do it well. So I said no and didn't feel like the right way to start off my directing career. And I was very gratified when they returned to me uh, and invited me to do Halloween 3. Being all new, all different, something experimental, I was delighted. I was delighted to be called back into the fold because those are friends after all. And uh, I knew that, especially because Dean Cundy and that crew would be along, that it was likely to to be successful, had a good shot at something really interesting. And to be sure, uh, Nigel Neal turned in a really wonderful script. It needed a lot of work which it turned out he was unwilling to do. So that John wound up rewriting Nigel, and then I wound up rewriting John. John never claimed credit for it, and Nigel took his name off of it, so I wound up with writing credit on a basically a three-writer script. <laughs> but, you know, it worked out. Nigel's, an awful lot of Nigel's ideas were intact. You know, they survived. Just the general concept of a evil genius, toy maker type of guy who has these masks and he's planning a ritual sacrifice of the children that that was all straight from nigel neal what we did was punched up his script had a museum piece quality about it that felt a little bit stuck in 50s british television and that was what we worked on is is kind of updating it and i introduced the idea of these gray suit characters going around killing people sort of corporate. I like the idea of the corporate-looking suit guys being the villains cause uh, an innate distrust of corporations in general and that whole world, as well as television, which I think is, uh, that is truly a two-sided coin. It can be a force for good, but boy, it can be a force for evil too.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned Roger Ebert giving you guys that boost on Halloween. What do you recall the general consensus being on Part 3 when it was released?
2: Well, critically, it was mixed, you Mm -hmm. know. A few people got it and said so, and I was gratified by that. But the uh, fact of the matter is that the general reaction followed, if you can see the subtitle of the book, it says, Halloween Mm -hmm. 3, Where the Hell is Michael Myers?, That was the reaction of much of the viewing audience because of all the things we got right, we got one thing really wrong and that was the promotion of the movie, the advertising. It was a beautiful poster and I I don't know how many of those I've signed, put my autograph on. I love the poster, but it didn't tell us that it was gonna be something different and something new and we were trying a franchise here and everybody bear with us because you're going to have a great ride. It's going to be fun and entertaining and interesting, but it's not Michael Myers. It's not Jamie Lee. We didn't do any of that. We didn't really set the table properly. And as a result, we paid the price. People sitting in the theater, a lot of them were expecting all of that, and it didn't deliver on those things at all. So it has taken many years for it to really be discovered in its own right as a legitimate entertainment and something in fact that is a great deal more about halloween the season and the rituals involved than the original halloween ever was the original halloween was originally called the babysitter murders for the reason (laughs) obvious reason (laughs) that it was about babysitting and the halloween part was kind of tacked on right that was clever and that was good but we really talked about halloween and i think that's one reason it's become so popular is people love to show it part of their annual Halloween ritual
0: there's always uh you know there's the slasher aspect of like you said Friday the 13th and the subsequent Halloweens but for me personally what I've always loved about Halloween is the occult ritualistic witchcraft aspect and that's why I loved Halloween 3 it was just so more my style of Halloween stuff
2: thank you Deborah Hill I think had the original elevator pitch on Halloween 3 she and John had after Halloween 1 and Halloween 2, they had had enough of the shape and the knife and Jamie Lee and babysitting and all that. So they were ready to try something new. And I believe she was the one with the brainchild of the phrase was witchcraft meets the computer age. Mm. It was just that simple. And that's what Nigel Neal took and ran with. I love it because it circles back on the, the origins of Halloween itself.
0: Right, Tommy. Just another one of your projects. Massive Fright Night and Fright Night Two fan.
2: Heard a rumor that it's going to get a a proper release at long last, along with Fright Night as a boxed set next year, in whatever yeah. the, whatever the latest format is. It's beyond blue, uh, uh, Blu-ray. Four K, into- possibly. Yeah, maybe it's four K. The uh, that's a, a rumor coming out of England, I think. I'm not sure. It deserves a a proper release because, like Halloween 3, thanks to Dean Cundey and uh, Peter Jameson, a gorgeous movie. Really pretty to look at. Fright Night Part 2 is also a beautiful movie, thanks to Mark Irwin and Dean Cheddar and others. Beautiful to look at, widescreen. So, hopefully it'll get a proper release at last.
0: Was there any talk between you and Tom? I know he wasn't. Tom Holland, was he... Yeah. About carrying on the Dandridge angle with Regine? Or was that the way you decided to carry forward?
2: <laughs> well, I wrote a script, co wrote, I should say, a script that tried to just go on with something original. It's a little bit hard to retell something like that where the main character thinks he sees vampires, but he knows vampires aren't real, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's the hook of the whole thing. So we decided to do a sort of fantastic four version of people riding around in a limousine, glamorous vampires if you will, and uh freaky other characters in attendance, which I thought was super fun. Yeah. But shortly before we started shooting, I uh reached out to Tom and we had lunch together, and I just wanted to touch base with him, you could say in the way of passing a torch it was a you know he didn't give me any great secrets about anything uh, other than to say you know what what had been on his mind coming up with the original idea and what he thought was important about the whole thing it was just a pleasant lunch and it, uh, he he wasn't involved at all in the uh, right. day-to-day or the uh, the writing of the script or any of that good guy enjoyed talking with him
0: Tommy, you're also responsible for my personal favorite, Stephen King adaption. So just take us through landing the project, and I, how do you tiptoe between staying true to the source material while putting your own stamp on things?
2: Well, you know, I'm sure you know that the uh, novel, It, is more than a thousand pages long. And the It miniseries, by the time it got to me, I think it had originally been planned as maybe a three- or even four-night miniseries with an appropriate size budget. But along the way, I think different entities, producer here, writer over here, had nibbled away at some of that budget. So by the time it got to me, it was a two-night miniseries. Well, two nights of a TV movie, let's see, uh, TV movies, two hours long, take-away uh, let's see, 84, see, take away a substantial chunk of time for commercials. You've got a fairly small time frame in which to tell a thousand-page novel. So right there, yeah. You, your challenge is to hit the high points, try and capture the essence of the thing, but you are never, ever, ever going to get all the way down in the weeds with the original novel. So it had to be a kind of Reader's Digest condensed version of that. And a lot of credit for Night number 1, the structure of that, a lot of credit goes to Larry Cohen, the original writer of the teleplay, because uh, the way television divides up its uh, commercials, for no particular aesthetic reason, I'm sure for total money reasons, their movies, two-hour television, time slot movies are divided into seven acts. Through a fabulous coincidence, there are seven characters, seven key characters in uh, the original It. And so Larry was able to devote one act to each of the seven characters. And I thought the structure was really brilliant where we begin with present day, find them in their current situation, and they're getting the news that It has returned. And we keep going back in time to their childhoods and how it all unfolded. And then the drama arc of the first night is all about those children going down into the depths of hell, really, and dealing with it and doing combat, literally, with it. And then night number two is, from the adult perspective, returning to the scene to Derry and uh, grappling once again with the monster. And funnily enough, as good as the first night was, Somehow or other, the second night script needed needed work, needed quite a bit of work. For me, the solution that was presented was to just drop virtually everything from the climax in the book and have this kind of TV movie solution that involved a dramatic leap from the second story of the library being impaled on a moose head or some. To me, it was just bullshit. I rewrote all that and tried to hew a little more faithfully to what the book was saying. I think it was okay it wasn't as strong as night number one but i think it was a legitimate ending to a movie you can quibble with well gee really did all of that come to a spider but that's what the book did so what what am i supposed to do i tried to be faithful to that but right. uh, i'm glad you i'm glad you enjoyed it i was very very proud of it it was a great shoot fun shoot up in uh, vancouver canada the adult actors and the children, I think our secret weapon was our casting. I believe that those children grew up to be those adults. Yeah, uh,
0: exactly, yeah.
2: We had a uh, kind of a character camp where the adults, the adult actors and the children actors got together and worked out certain mannerisms. Uh, the most obvious being Bill Denborough, Richard Thomas's character and his counterpart, child counterpart kind of had this thing they kept grabbing their ear something little characteristic things like that that right. would only be possible if the actors collaborated so that was a real a real advantage and I thought that was one of the great strengths of the story a lot of people kind of forget that Everybody calls Stephen King the master of horror and all. It's about scary this and scary that. But in truth, to me, the core of Stephen King's gift, and it is a gift. I think he's one of the great American novelists. The core of it is about rites of passage, especially rites of passage of children and the bonds you make when you're, when you're a kid. I think I succeeded in showcasing that. I think Rob Reiner did a great job showcasing that in uh, Stand By Me. Yeah,
0: that's another great one.
2: And that's a Stephen King story. Yeah. I'm very proud of it. I have not seen the, uh, the new one, I must say. I've got it here on a stack of DVDs. And I know I'll get around to watching it at some point. But I was kind of, I felt like there was a breach of logic. They've got this clown. Their version of Pennywise is so sinister looking just on the surface, just taking a picture of the regular old clown if you're a kid would you walk up to that thing i wouldn't exactly. A kid would stay as far away from that creature as possible whereas tim curry's pennywise was actually fun looking and kind of enticing to a little kid hi georgie yeah you know, i thought they blew it right off the bat before i've even seen the movie because the guy looked so evil and scary
0: my wife is also a massive It fan and Stephen King fan in general. She will not watch those the new ones. See, We've seen them at theaters. She won't watch them again. And I told um, her, I said, you know, I'm talking to Tommy Lee Wallace tomorrow. He, direct, he, he directed the It movie. She said, new or old? And I said, the old ones. And she got excited.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. That was, thank you.
0: I will. I will. I'm not going to keep you too much longer here, Tommy. But could you tell that Tim Curry was putting on a special performance at the time?
2: Oh, yes. You know, he is a consummate professional. Bless his heart. He had a stroke, by the way. He still has bravely shown up at uh, some of these cons to do autographs. And uh, just the idea that he gets up and makes a showing is an act of great courage. He was endlessly inventive. He had Actually, the original Pennywise design I had done uh, with the uh, production designer, we had invented this big bulbous forehead and we had a chin extension and we had cheekbone extensions and Tim didn't like that. He he had been, uh, I guess it was, I can't remember what the movie was before that. that uh, He'd been covered so much in makeup, it might as well have been Joe Blow under there. He didn't want to wear all that stuff, but he was, you know, he gamely agreed to put it on once and we played with it. He looked really wild, but in the end, he was right. Uh, we removed the chin extension, we took away the cheekbones, we left the bulbous forehead, which I think was a good move. That was Tim under there. <laughs> and he really just found the right note to get right in between that lovable versus scary thing that uh, he he just played endlessly with that back and forth. It was fabulous. It was, yes, at the time, everyone was riveted by his performance right there on the set. That's awesome.
0: Well, this is just something I like to ask everyone to wrap up, Tommy, because you never know what they're going to say. Have you ever had an experience you would consider supernatural or paranormal?
2: <sighs> I'm still looking. I'm still waiting because I I have been to some uh, faraway places out in the uh, plains of St. Augustine in New Mexico, a likely place for a UFO sighting, if ever there was one. <laughs> I've been out there camping not too far from the very large array, which are these big satellite dishes out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you saw them in uh, Contact, mm. the uh, Bob Zemeckis movie with Jodie Foster. I've been camping out there going, okay guys, I'm ready, come on, <laughs> you know, fly by, show me. And there's this eerie uh, story about a creature called the Bell Witch. Yeah, it's, very it's familiar. Up. Being a Southerner, you may have mm-hmm. heard that. In Tennessee, not too far away from Nashville, I wanted to look into that, see if there was a, a movie in it. And so I went to the Bell Witch, cave, I took a friend with me. We went down in the cave. We saw all these photographs of the person who trying to turn this into a tourist attraction. They have snapshots of eerie lights and things, paranormal kind of phenomena. So, I think, okay, you know, let's have it. Uh, let's go down in the cave. Toured the cave, kind of kept wondering if anything might happen. And in fact, when we were done, nothing had happened. And I said to the person who was our guide, leave me down here for a little while, would you? If something is down here, I wanna give it a chance to communicate, okay? They did. My friend who was with me said, no, I'm not gonna stick around for that. <laughs> he left and the person said, okay, here's the way out. You know, when you're done, come on out through here. Thank you. And so I waited and it was like, come ahead, I'm ready. i willing to believe, do it, nothing nothing, nothing, five minutes, nothing. Okay, see you. And I walked out. Well, so I've been ready and willing and able to bring, you know, to experience such a thing. Hasn't happened to me, but you know what? My friend a day later called me up and he said, Tommy, I'm withdrawing from the project. I said, what? Why? Why? What's up? He said, I can't tell you. I can't speak of it, but something happened when I got home, and that's all I'm going to say. And I got to drop out of the project. I just wanted to let you know. So,
0: there you oh, we go. Well,
2: there you go. You know, if there is a bell witch, the bell witch came to see him. <laughs> and, she got uh, the wrong address. And said uh, you better, you better back off. <laughs> anyway, that's that's the best I can do in that category. I I'd love to experience such things. I'm totally of the belief that supernatural things spirit things are out there i'm i'm not cynical about that at all is there an afterlife i think probably some you know our atoms don't die when we die everything in that that makes up this body stays on is there a spirit that stays on don't know i'm willing to believe it's true can that manifest as that crosses over that dimension do they feel like ghosts maybe i don't know but personally haven't experienced it yet i'm ready i'm hey, waiting
0: one day we'll all find out right
2: <laughs> i hope so <laughs> I, I don't know if there's any guarantee of that <laughs> i will add this one sure thing. go ahead i often thought that it may be self-determining in other words if you believe that when you die that's the end you just lie there and it's over then that may be what you get right Whereas If you believe that, oh no, when I'm done with my body, my spirit can fly, that may be what you get. So, I I don't know how much your active belief system plays a part, but I'm ready to believe because, hey, I dream about flying all the time. I really look forward to the possibility that that's what you get to do when you die.
0: You and me both. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like I said, Tommy, it's been a pleasure talking to you, man. Not going to keep you all evening. Thank you for giving me some of your time.
2: Ah, Justin, it's been a pleasure. Can you uh, link uh, Wynn? You've been in touch with Wynn. Yeah, yeah. If you can give Wynn that link, that would be great.
0: Oh, absolutely, I will. No problem. You have a great rest of your day, man.
2: All right, thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bye.
0: All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Tommy. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time.
2: Monsters, madness, and magic.
1: <laughs> Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. All with in depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.